Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jonah. We're continuing in our sermon series on the book of Jonah that we have entitled Waves of Mercy, Depths of Grace. We've seen so far that Jonah is a great work of literature, that it has structure and symmetry with chapters 1 and 3, beginning with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Chapters 2 and 4 both begin with Jonah praying to God. We've seen multiple plays on words, various rhetorical devices. But as we begin this morning, I want to give you a trigger warning. I want to give you a trigger alert if you're following on your sermon notes there. Little trigger alert. You see, some folks read this narrative, and when they get to chapter 1 and verse 17, the last verse uh, of the first chapter, we read there, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And some folks read that and they say, Okay, I can't really believe this. I, all these miracles the Bible talks about, I, I believe there's a guy named Jonah. I can see how you'd be disobedient to God. But this whole being swallowed by a great fish thing, I, that, that's too much. That's beyond the pale. And then folks answer and say, well, I believe everything that the Bible says. Maybe you've seen bumpers. So I would believe it if it said Jonah swallowed the fish. And then people hear that and think, well, I just I don't have that kind of faith. And I just... You know, I can't hear the rest of this because of that one fact in the narrative. And so let me just take a moment to address that. I want to try to ease your mind if that's where you are, if you are skeptical about the text because of that part. And if you're not skeptical, listen, I promise you, you know somebody who is skeptical. And if you don't know anybody who's skeptical of this claim, then you need to make some more friends and get better at evangelism and outreach. Talk to some folks, okay? But let me ease your mind about what it says here. Because there are a lot of folks who say that Jonah just added this part about being swallowed by the fish in order to heighten the drama of the narrative. Well, we certainly remember Jonah for being swallowed by a fish. Before this sermon series, that's what all many of us would have been able to say about Jonah. But a few thoughts about that. First of all, it's a pretty dramatic narrative without the fish, Right? He didn't really have to add being swallowed by a well in order for the narrative to be dramatic. Feel free to read it for yourself. We've said we could read this book in six or seven minutes, and so I would encourage you to do so. Secondly, I would point out, you know, the fish is not even the part of the narrative that speaks to most people. I would imagine there are very few people who have ever lived on the uh, face of it that even come close to a whale or a great fish like this, right? Most of what the narrative speaks to us is Joseph's attitude and his reaction to God's word and his repentance and his dealing with his own biases that we will continue to do. And so I would say the fish is not even the part of the narrative that speaks to most people. And if it's included to heighten the drama, wow, Jonah is really low-key about it. He only mentions it twice, right there that I just read at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, and then at the end of chapter 2, the fish spits him out. That's it. Those are the only times he mentions it. He speaks much more about the sea and the storm and the things we looked at in chapter 1. Joseph is just kind of, I mean, Jonah is just kind of matter of fact about something that rarely happens. But if you do some research, there are a lot of folks who claim 
It is a thing, right? It is something that happens. Just last year, Michael Packard was diving for lobster off the Cape Cod coast in Massachusetts when he was consumed by a whale. In 2016, Luigi Marquez, a 56-year-old Spanish fisherman, uh, lived to tell the tale after spending three days inside a whale. And various other accounts over the years, many of them are disputed, are recorded in history. Going all the way back, the earliest one I saw was the 1890s when James Bartley claimed to be swallowed by a sperm whale while on a whaling expedition near the Falklands. And all these men claimed to survive. So it happens... In fact, if you look on YouTube, there is a four-minute and eight-second video entitled How to Survive Getting Swallowed by a Whale. So if you're really concerned about it, check that out. Not now, later, uh, during lunch. But, But don't reject this book just because it includes this part of Jonah's story. That's all I'm going to say about it. Jonah doesn't spend a lot of time on it, so I'm not going to spend any more time on it as well. So what are we going to focus on today. What is Jonah chapter 2 about? Well, here's what we're going to focus on because this seems to be where Jonah is going in the story. If you have your Bible and you're looking, look at the first three verses in the book of Jonah. Look at those first three verses. Do you remember what happens? Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah at the beginning of the book. We learned last week that he was a great prophet, that he had prophesied for the Lord before and been right during the reign of King Jeroboam II. You can read about that in 2 Kings. And this word comes to him and he rebels. He runs in the opposite direction. So he does something differently than what God calls him to do uh, when he speaks to him. So that's in Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, look at Jonah 3. We've talked about this book has structure and symmetry to it. And chapters 1 and 3 both begin with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. But look what happens in Jonah 3, which we'll look at next week. Those first three verses, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, that's the beginning of chapter 3. So at the beginning of chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes and Jonah disobeys. At the beginning of chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he obeys. He does what God calls him to do. So the question for us, what chapter 2 is about, is this. What happened, (laughs) right? What happened between the word of the Lord coming at the beginning of Jonah 1 and the beginning of Jonah 3? What changed? What is it that caused Jonah to rebel the first time but then obey the second time? What was it that caused him to respond appropriately to the word of the Lord in Jonah 3 that we'll look at next week, but to disobey in Jonah chapter 1? You see, that's the question Jonah chapter 2 answers. So if you're here today and you're thinking, how can I have a relationship with God? What does a right relationship with God look like? How can I be saved or come into a saving relationship with God? Jonah chapter 2 is going to give us a picture of what that looks like. Very concretely. Not using theological terms, but just painting a picture of what that looks like. 
Maybe you're here today and you're already a believer. You would say, I am a follower of Christ. I've already made that commitment. I've said yes to all the things we heard Thomas say yes to up here today. Well, remember, Jonah was already a committed follower of God as well. Yet we see growth in Jonah here. We see that he's transformed, that he goes from being disobedient to being obedient. Something changes in Jonah. So how does that happen for us as followers of God? How does that happen for people who are Christians? How does growth take place in the Christian life? How can I be transformed so that more and more I'm able to bring my life in line with what God calls me to do in his word? We get a picture of that here in Jonah chapter 2. So let's look at that together. Jonah chapter 2. Now if you haven't been with us or if you're like me and you just forget a little review of chapter 1. God, after Jonah disobeys, God sends a wind which causes a great storm. And we learn from that that at times difficulties that disrupt our plans can be used by God to get our attention. But that still doesn't cause Jonah to obey. We haven't seen that transformation in his life as of yet. We looked last week about how Jonah interacted with the captain and the sailors who were on the boat who call him out and say, this storm is your fault. You've gotten us into this trouble. We're going to perish because of your poor choices. What do we do? And we saw that sometimes God uses relational conflict to get our attention. But that relational conflict didn't lead to Jonah obeying. That transformation has not taken place yet, right? I think it got Jonah's attention, but we haven't seen him obey as of yet. Jonah even took responsibility for the storm and admitted it was because of his disobedience in chapter 1 and verse 12. But he's still not been transformed. He doesn't say, okay, God, now I'll do it. He'll say, just go ahead and throw me into the sea, right? Evidently, he'd rather die than obey God is where he is at the end of chapter 1. And so they throw him into the sea. And that's where we pick up reading in Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. How are we transformed? How do we come into a saving relationship with God? He uses these things to get our attention. Disruptions in our plans and in our life. Hard times. Relational conflict. But those things don't necessarily lead to change. What does lead to change? What leads to transformation? What leads us to a saving relationship with God? Number one, first step, cry out to God. Number one, cry out to God. We saw last week that Jonah said, yeah, it's my, it's my fault that this has happened. But he doesn't cry out to God. He doesn't turn to God. But look at Jonah chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. We read there, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Step one in transformation, step one in growth in the Christian life, step one in the coming into a saving relationship with God is, number one, cry out to God. Facing hard times does not necessarily lead to our crying out to God or to change. Jonah has faced the wind, he's faced the storm, he's faced the captains, he's faced the sailors, he's faced being thrown into a stormy sea, and he has not cried out to God. So facing hard times does not necessarily change us. 
facing hard times and then crying out to God is what changes us. Hard times can either make us bitter or they can make us better. It's the crying out to God that determines the difference, that makes a difference in the outcome. So let me just stop right there and ask you. We're only on verse 1, right? Have you cried out to God? Maybe you've never done that before in your life. I hope that today will be the day that you are willing to do so. Maybe you have cried out to God in the past. Have you cried out to God for growth, for transformation, to go to the next level spiritually? Have you cried out to him in a tough situation? I often ask my own self this question, and I ask other people as they complain about difficulties to me. And I often ask myself, have you cried out to God about your difficult situation at least as much as you have complained about it to other people? Now, you need to understand, that is not what the Scripture calls you to do. This this is kind of Scott's method of facing the world, right? But man, if I would cry out to God at least as much as I complained about things to other people, that'd be a lot of crying out to God, wouldn't it? And so I ask you, in the difficulties that you face, do you cry out to God at least as much as you complain to other people, at least as much as you post about it on Facebook, at least as much as you talk about it on social media? Here's why that's a good idea. God can actually do something about your situation. Very few other people have that kind of control. I would say nobody does, right? The first step is to cry out to God because he can actually save you. He can actually do something. Now, crying out to God doesn't automatically get you there. We're not across the finish line, right? I mean, Jonah could cry out to God and shake his fist and say, I hate you for what you've done to me. I will burn in hell before I do what you say. So what's the next thing that happens? What do we see pictured here? Number two, admit that God is right and I am wrong. Admit that God is right. And I'm not just crying out, not just complaining, although we see lots of examples of that in the Psalms. And I think that's a healthy thing to do, to turn to God and to make your complaint to him. But eventually, we have to get to number two. Admit God is right and I am wrong. Look at verse four. Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, if he's inside the belly of a whale, or at least under the sea, he can't really see the holy temple, but he just says, I'm looking to your holy temple. And he says it again in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. He makes these references to the temple. Now, why is he looking to the temple as he is sinking down in the sea, as he's being consumed by a great fish? Why does he look to the temple? Well, Jonah is saying there, a good Jewish prophet, what he is saying is, He's admitting that he has sinned, that he is wrong. And his hope is in that place where sacrifice is made for his sin, the holy temple. He is looking toward that place where payment for his sin has taken place, the sacrifices at the temple. 
He is looking toward that place where cleansing is available for his sin. The sacrifice is at the tip. He mentions it twice in verses 4 and verses 7. He's saying, I know I have sinned. I know that I am wrong. And I'm looking to that place where sacrifice and payment and cleansing is available for my sin. So we see crying out to God doesn't necessarily lead to change. If we just shake our fist at him and says, why you got to be so mean when we talk to God? So let me ask you, have you gotten to the place that you admit that God is right and you are wrong? Have you gotten to that place that you yield to him, that you submit to him, that you admit that you don't get to determine what is right or wrong for yourself? Isn't that underneath what's a lot of our complaining with God? Think about it. I get mad with God because he hasn't done what I think he should do when I think he should do it. Somehow in my infinite wisdom, I think that I know better than God what he should do and when he should do it. Now listen, we're to cry out to God. We are to pray to him and cry out to him. But at some point, we have to get to the place that we say, God, you are right and I am wrong. How can the imperfect find fault with the perfect? At some point, we have to get there with David. The psalmist says in Psalm 51 and verse 4 where he says, I know I was conceived in sin. I know that I am sinful so that, God, you are right when you speak and you are just when you judge. You heard it in the vows this morning. That first vow, membership vow for our church that says, I acknowledge that I myself am a sinner in the sight of God and that I justly deserve his displeasure, that he is right and that I am wrong. Have you gotten to that place that you do that? Have you said that one time to the Lord to come into a saving relationship with him? Is it something that you do over and over and over again in your life? That's the key to growth. That's how transformation takes place. That's what maturity in the Christian life looks like. It's not just a one time, I'll admit God's right and I'm wrong. It's over and over and over again as God shows us different ways in our life that we're not living in consistency with his word. You do understand God does not overwhelm us with all our sin at one time, right? We would be undone. Maybe you've had that experience. You think, oh my gosh, the Holy Spirit is convicting me of this sin. I've done this my whole life. I've been like this as long as I can remember. And he's just now convicting me of this. Of course he does that. Because if he showed you all your sin at once, you'd be overwhelmed. Growth in the Christian life looks like crying out to God and then admitting God is right and I am wrong. There's a third thing I see Jonah do here. Jonah admits that God can fix it, but I cannot fix it. That's something we've got to do. We've got to say, God, I know you are able, but I am not able. We have to get to the point that we say to God, God, you are the answer. I am not the answer. Where do you see Jonah do that? You see it in verses 5 and 6, right? 
Jonah says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. When you know, down there low where the mountains are, even underneath the sea. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, right? He's going to that place of death. He's not coming back. The bars are going to close on him forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Jonah's saying, listen, I blew it. I messed up. Uh, I love the old hymn, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I, love lifted me. That's what Jonah's saying, I messed up, I was sinking in my own sin, and the judgment of God for my disobedience. And I cried out to God because I was not able to save myself. Only God could intervene and save me. That's what he ends up saying at the end. That's his conclusion, right? Verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. We must admit not only that we're wrong, but that we can't fix it. We have to admit that we cannot make up for our sins or cleanse ourselves or do good things so that God owes us. It's not enough just to say, hey, I did something wrong. God, I was wrong and you were right. When we go on to think, but I can fix it. I can be really good for a long period of time and then it's okay again. If I do a lot of good things to make up for that bad thing, sometimes we say, oh, I'll go to church I'll get in that old boring Bible that I don't want to, but I'm going to do it to make up for this bad stuff that I did. And in that way, we're trying to earn our salvation. We're trying to earn our way. We've got some of us do it this way. We say, well, I'm just going to, I realize what I did was bad. I'm going to feel real bad real long. And if I feel bad long enough, then I have kind of done my penance and I can come back to God because I've earned it. no. The only way you can come before God is because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's the only thing that ever makes us able to come before God. When you rely on these other things, getting in the word, coming to church, feeling bad, Lord, if you are depending on those things to make you right before God, when only Jesus and his work can make you right before God, We have to get to the place that we say, not only I admit that God is right and I am wrong, but I admit I cannot fix it. Only God can fix it. We sang it this morning when we sang the old hymn, Rock of Ages. We sang, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Lord, I'm not bringing something to you saying this makes me acceptable. We're saying it's only the finished work of Christ on the cross that allows me to come before God. You heard it in the vows this morning as well, right? That we justly deserve his displeasure and we're without hope save in his sovereign mercy. That I can't fix it. That salvation belongs to the Lord. So let me just ask you, When you cry out to God, do you admit not only that God is right and that you are wrong, but do you admit, I can't fix it. Lord, I'm not the answer. Lord, I'm not the answer for this church. I'm not the answer in my home. 
I'm not the answer in my workplace. I'm not the answer in this culture, in this country. Do you admit, Lord, I'm the problem? And left to my own devices, I will continue to make it worse. Do you say, not only, Lord, you are right, I admit that you're right and I'm wrong, but, Lord, I also admit you can fix it, but I cannot. Come, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Work in me and through me, but it has to be you and not my flesh. Because only you can fix it. I cannot. That's how a relationship with God takes place. That's how growth in the Christian life, that's how transformation takes place. That I'm dying more and more to myself and I'm living more and more of Christ in me as he fills me with his spirit. As I confess and turn from the things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The things that quench the spirit as I turn from those things and more and more the spirit grows his fruit in my life. That's how growth takes place. That's how transformation takes place. So we see Jonah cries out to God. He admits God is right, that he's wrong. He admits God can fix it, but he can't. That God's the answer, that he's not. There's a fourth thing. He trusts in what God has done for his salvation. He trusts in what God has done for his salvation. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, when my life was fainting away, I promised God that I'd make it better. No, I remembered the Lord And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Many commentators say those two verses are the theme of the entire Bible. Think about it. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The theme of all the scripture. That's the way we have a relationship with God. We admit we're right, that he's right, that we're wrong. We admit we can't fix it, only he can. And then we look to what he has provided for our salvation, right? We talked about how Jonah looked to the place where sacrifice had been made for his sin, where payment had been made for his sin, where cleansing was available For his sin, and he's saying, That's where I'm placing my hope, not in my goodness, not in my resourcefulness. I am looking to your holy temple, I am looking to what you provide. That's where I'm placing my hope. How are we saved? How are we transformed? How do we grow? We trust in what God has done for our salvation. We look on this side of the cross, not to the temple. Not where the blood of bulls and goats were sacrificed for sin. We look to Jesus. The one whom all those animal sacrifices pointed to. We look to Jesus who said, tear down this temple and I will build it back in three days. Referring to himself that his body was the temple of God. We look to Jesus the one who made sacrifice for our sin. We look to Jesus, the one who provides payment for our sin. We look to Jesus, the only one who can provide cleansing from our sin. Jonah points us to Jesus. Did you know Jesus said that? 
Jesus said this particular chapter points to his work and what he would do. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 12. Some people come to Jesus and they ask for a sign that he was from God. And Jesus said, I'm not giving you any sign except for the sign of Jonah. I wonder what he meant by that. Both Jesus and Jonah are sent by God on a mission to deliver people. Both came calling people to repent in order to escape, escape God's judgment. Both Jonah and Jesus sacrificed themselves to save others. Jonah with the sailors in chapter 1. Jesus, of course, on the cross for our sin. Both reappear alive after three days. And that's what Jesus said is the sign that points to him. In Matthew 12 and verse 40, he, Jesus said, For just as the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, um, so will the Son of Man, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That's the sign of Jonah that Jesus says points to him. But Jesus went on. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn this generation. For the Ninevites, for those people, repented at the preaching of Jonah, yet one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says the whole thing, the saving relationship with God, the growth and the transformation and the spiritual life, that it turns on repentance. That the men of Nineveh repented, but those people that he was talking to had not repented. And so there was no saving relationship with God. There was no transformation in their life. That's what Jonah 2 describes for us. We have just spent all this time talking about repentance. What it looks like to repent. Maybe you've heard that word. It's a big church word. Jonah doesn't use the word at all. But he certainly draws us a picture of it, doesn't he? That's what repentance is. So when Jesus comes preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin, when Jesus comes preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's talking about this process, crying out to God, admitting God is right and that I'm wrong, admitting that God can fix that, but I can't, trusting in what God has provided for my salvation. If you want to be saved, if you want to be transformed, if you want to grow, I call you to repent, to cry out to God, to admit that God is right and you are wrong, to admit God can fix it and you can't, to trust in what God has done for your salvation, to turn from the ways you've been running from God, to look to the place where sacrifice and payment and cleansing for your sin is available. Usually when we talk about repentance, we're talking about people coming to the Lord for the first time. Certainly the Bible calls us to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sin. But Christian, follower of Christ, I want you to hear this very clearly. All of the Christian life is repentance. Repentance. We're always crying out to God and admitting that he's right in a multitude of areas of our life. Read Martin Luther, his 95 theses that he nails to the church house door at Wittenberg. Do you remember what number one is? When the Lord Jesus called us to repent, he's showing us that the entire life of a believer is one of repentance. 
That's how you come into a saving relationship with God. That's how transformation takes place. That's how growth happens in the Christian life. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this picture of repentance. We use these words all the time without them having any reality in our lives. Thank you for showing us a picture of what this looks like. Please be at work in our hearts. Send the circumstances we need that would call us to cry out to you. Help us to admit that you are right, that we're wrong, that you can fix it, that we cannot. Help us to trust in what you have provided for our salvation, the Lord Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.